Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, as we will finish, Lord willing, the book of Galatians this morning. It's been a great little book, powerful, a lot to glean from. But the word this morning is right doctrine should result in right living. Right doctrine should result in right living. The last chapter of Galatians gives us some exhortations or encouragements about different areas of Christian behavior. And it takes one last shot at circumcision and salvation and then ends with a farewell. Some exhortations are given concerning various areas of behavior and how a behavior, uh, a believer should behave. Believers should behave better than those under the law or those living in the flesh. Now, there were a lot of quarrels now breaking out in the Galatian churches. And it's as if Paul was standing outside the church, looking in through the windows, and he sees all of this bickering going on. And he, he shouts this one word. Notice chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren. Brethren. As if to say, stop it. Stop this quarreling. Stop this bickering among yourselves. Let's read verse 1 now. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass or fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. In a spirit of gentleness or meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. The word brethren here, the first time we see this word used this way is in Genesis chapter 13, verse 8. And it says it like this. The word is used not only of those with common parents, but also of those with common ancestors. Thus, the descendants of Israel are brothers. So again, the word is not only used uh, of those who have common parents, but also common ancestors. Again, as uh, the Israelites, they were brothers. As you and I this morning, we're brothers and sisters. Abraham and Lot entered the promised land. And Abraham built his altar. And he called on the name of the Lord there. Then came the unbecoming disagreement between Abraham and Lot's herdsmen. And it was a disagreement between the two that could possibly ruin not just their fellowship between Abraham and Lot, but also their testimony. And we do a lot of damage as Christians in the church bickering and arguing with one another. Abraham was the spiritual one. And he took the leading, or the lead, in solving this problem. He said to Lot, Lot, go ahead. He says, let there be no strife between you and me and our herdsmen. And he said, because we're brethren. They're watching us, Lot. Let them not see us arguing. Because we're brethren. And then Abraham came up with an idea that proved what a spiritual man he'd already become. An idea that involved giving up his own rights and privileges. 
And many times those are the things that we end up bickering about. Our so-called rights and privileges. We're not willing to stand down. We want to stand upon them. We want to stand up for my rights and my privileges. But Abraham said to Lot, Lot, you can choose and take whatever pasture land that you want. And he says, I'll take whatever's left over. And Lot was quick to pick what he wanted. And his answer was selfish. It showed how worldly and carnal Lot was and how backslidden his heart was. Whatever, we, whatever else we may or may not be in the family of God, there's one thing that's for sure. There's one thing that's basic. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Mutual love, respect, and assistance are the thought behind the word brethren. So as brothers and sisters, there should be mutual love, there should be mutual respect, and we should be assisting one another. We have so much in common. We're brothers and sisters. And he said, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, in the King James it says a fault, which is the same thing, the word fault means a falling beside. That's the Thayer's Greek lexicon definition of fault or trespasses, a falling beside. It's used of a violation of God's law, of a moral fall and of a falling away from the truth. And this is what Adam did. He fell aside from the truth. And in the context, it has in the works of the flesh that were just listed in 19 through 21. Remember, those who do these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God in the verses 19 through 21. So that, that's kind of, falling aside is referring to those type of sins in that situation it can also involve the falling aside of those who are uh, who were listening to and following the false teaching of the judaizers now some of the galatians were in danger of falling away from the truth so it was urgent that those who are spiritual restore them before it was too late Again, it was as if, like right here, he says, you know, if, if you know somebody that, that's, you know, uh, in the danger of falling away here in the body of Christ, what Paul's saying here to the Galatians, it also uh, it stands for what's going on in, in, in any church in any time. Is if you know somebody that's, that's in danger of falling away, you which are spiritual are to restore such a one before it's too late. And then the word overtaken there in verse 1. That, that overtaken can mean to be found out or detected before he can flee or conceal his crime. It could mean or might mean the person was unintentionally caught by some trespass being caught off guard. Something you didn't ex expect. You unintentionally fell into sin. Uh, you were caught off guard, but nonetheless you fell. Now, this is quite different from somebody deliberately giving in to a temptation and thinking out the process or the practice of evil and doing it. And then the word for restore there in verse 1 means to render. It means fit, sound, complete, or to mend. Okay, it, 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 it's to restore something that's been broken or torn. It means to repair. You are to restore. You're to repair that one that is in danger of falling away. 
The Greeks use the, the Greeks use the word to describe the action of a physician setting a bone. Now, this would call for knowledge. It would call for skill and gentleness. It wasn't a job for just anyone. Mishandling a broken bone could do more damage and cause more suffering. And so again, when it says, you, are, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Again, it's the picture of a doctor setting a broken bone. Now, not just anybody can set a broken bone. Not anybody can, just re- can restore somebody who's in the danger of falling. It takes skill. It takes gentleness. Because if not, mishandling a broken bone could do more damage and cause more suffering. And a lot of times people, you know, maybe a brother or sister sees somebody in the danger of falling and they want to go and they want to restore them. But they don't have the skill. They don't have the gentleness. And so they say something offhanded. They say something maybe they didn't mean to say or it's the way they said it. And guess what? Now they've done more damage. They've caused more suffering to that individual who's already fallen. So Paul says, you who are spiritual, and this is important, you who are spiritual, you're like that doctor who is skilled at setting that broken bone. You who are spiritual must take on the responsibility of correcting faults and failures among the brethren. The spiritual person can do that. The spiritual person is the one who is showing the fruit of the Spirit in his or her life. Tenderly, lovingly, compassionately, calmly, with gentleness. And because he or she is good, and in the spirit of meekness, the spiritual takes on the responsibility themselves to restore that fallen individual. And the fruit of meekness or gentleness is very important in this process when you're dealing with a fallen brother or sister because it's very calming. All right? It's very calming, and it, and it carries with it no blame. It doesn't lecture. It doesn't show a critical response and disapproval. In other words, if somebody came to you and, and, and shared that they've fallen, and this is what's going on in my life, you go, oh, I can't believe it. You, you didn't. No. That's horrible. That's, that's what Paul's talking about here. You don't lecture. You don't act with a critical surprise or show disapproval. It's that person is to be sensitive to the weakness of the flesh and aware of how easy it is for anyone to fall. So the person who would minister to a fallen brother or sister will, as it says here, notice at the end of verse 6, notice it says, considering himself or herself, lest they also be tempted. That means you need to be considering, think about yourself, because you could be in that situation one day. The shoe could be on the other foot. Considering himself, lest he also be tempted. And the word for considering means take heed. Watch out. Even though the spiritual person will be quick to see a brother's danger and need, they always have to be aware of their own weakness and their own danger because temptation is lurking everywhere for each and every one of us. 
Considering yourself means remembering the next time it might be one of you who is in the wrong. And understand, there is no state of holiness, all right? No state of holiness exists in this life that's beyond temptation. In other words, it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 50 years. It doesn't matter how well you know the Bible, how much you go to church, how much you pray. You are not immune to temptation. There are those who think, oh, I know the Bible back and forward. Oh, I've been a Christian for 50 years. And, you know, hey, that, that could never happen to me. I would never fall into a situation like that. Hey, David was almost 50 years old when he fell into sin with Bathsheba. You are never too old to sin. You're never too holy to sin. You're never too knowledgeable of the Word of God to sin because you are still in this flesh. You are still in this flesh. And sin and temptation is lurking everywhere. And Satan is just waiting for the right time, the right moment to grab you. So again, no state of holiness exists in this life that's beyond temptation. And more than one helpful counselor has fallen into, into the very sin that he's been trying to res- rescue somebody else from. And I've seen that over the years. Pastors in marriage counseling. Maybe he's pans- uh, counseling a, a, a wife who's, who's having a, a, a bad marriage and is going through a difficult time. She goes in to talk to the pastor and next thing you know, they're having an affair. They're having an affair. And that's where they have to be careful. And usually whenever, whenever I did marriage counseling, I had them both come in. And if just, and it just the one wants to come in, if it's a woman, then I have a woman there with me. Mostly, if it can be my wife, it'd be my wife in there. Got to be very careful. You got to understand the devil. You got to understand the temptation, man. He knows all the tricks. Verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The context here feel, refers back to verse 1. And it, it gives the idea of that spiritually mature person bearing with and helping to restore those who have fallen into sin. Bear, but bearing one another's burdens, it can't be limited to just that one situation alone. All right, the word for burden literally means a heavy weight or stone. And it's that heavy weight or stone, whatever it is, that someone is required to carry for a long distance. Figuratively speaking, it can mean to, it it came to mean any oppressive ordeal or hardship that was difficult to bear. And we can learn some important truth about practical Christian living from Paul's command here to bear one another's burdens. First of all, understand all Christians have burdens. They might be different in size, shape, and severity. And they will be different based on the providential ordering of our lives. In other words, those burdens, those, those, the, whatever size, shape, and severity is, is based on what God is doing in your life. Whatever God's will and whatever he's working in your life, he may use something here in this situation and something in a different situation based on what God is doing in your life in order to to achieve the accomplished goal of what God is doing in your life. 
He uses them for various reasons in in different people's lives. For some, it's, it's a burden of temptation and the consequences of moral failure, as verse 1 is talking about. For others, it might be a physical illness. It might be a mental disorder, a family crisis, it's a lack of employment. It might be demonic oppression or a number of other things, but no Christian is exempt from burdens. Secondly, the, sec- the, the second um, type of burden is the deception of self-sufficiency. We all have burdens, and God doesn't intend for us to carry them by ourselves in isolation from our brothers and sisters. And a lot of people, and you see this often, is that somebody's going through something. They're dealing with a situation. They're, they just this, got this heavy thing going on in their life, and you don't see them at church for two or three weeks. And then they come to church and, oh, hey, we missed you. We hadn't seen. Yeah, I, I was going through something. Yeah, I was, I was having a tough time. I was. The last thing you do is stay home from church when you're going through something. But see, that's what Satan wants you to do. It's the, it's the self-deception of self-sufficiency. I can handle it. I can do it. I don't need anybody. And yet Paul's saying, hey, we are to bear one another's burden. We do need each other because we're brothers and sisters in Christ and we have much in common. The ancient philosophy of Stoicism taught that the goal of the happy life in the Greek was apatheia, where we get our English word apathy. It's a studied aloofness from pleasure, pain, and self-sufficiency, the ability to brave the harsh elements of life without depending on others. The Roman philosopher Seneca put it like this, the primary sign of a well-ordered mind is a man's ability to remain in one place and linger in his own company. I can do it alone. I don't need anybody. But there's a huge difference between stoic calmness and Christian courage. The deception of, self, <clears throat> the deception of self-sufficiency, that's not a sign of bravery. It's a sign of pride. I don't want to tell anybody that I'm hurting. I don't want anybody to know what I'm going through. I want everybody to think I'm okay. I don't need anybody. He, this is in Proverbs 18.1, in the Amplified Version, it says, He who willfully separates and estranges himself from God and man seeks his own desire and excuse to break out against all wise and sound judgment. It is not a wise and sound thing to isolate yourself when you're going through difficulties. Paul's truth in verse 3 now is aimed at this perverted understanding of self. Look at verse 3 now. For if anyone thinks, notice, for if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This attitude of conceited self-importance leads to two basic failures in relationships. One, the refusal to bear the burdens of others, because that would be a task too menial and demeaning for a person who thinks they're somebody. The other uh, uh, attitude of conceited self-importance is refusing to let anybody uh, help and carry your burden because that would admit, I'm weak and I need. But to live this way is to practice the art of self-deception because no man is an island entirely to himself. 
because all Christians have burdens and none are able to bear their burdens alone. God has made the body of Christ, which is you, in such a way that its members are to be priests to one another, bearing one another's burdens, and so that we're fulfilling the law of Christ. And when we get to the book of Ephesians, that really gets into what we're talking about here because we are, it's, it's called the body life. We're the body life. Martin Luther said that a Christian must have broad shoulders and husky bones in order to carry the burdens of his brothers and sisters. And the command to bear one another's burdens is in, is in no way does it lessen the, uh, the other New Testament law to cast all our cares upon Christ. It's not a contradiction. We'll see that in a minute. Paul knew a lot about burdens. Paul was bummed out one time so badly because of afflictions that he encountered at every turn. He said there were fightings on the outside and there were fears on the inside. And at that time in his life, he wrote in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, and 6, he said, Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Notice that. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming, notice, of Titus. There was a person that comforted them. A, per, a person who comforted Titus in, in his time of need. I'm sorry, Titus comforted Paul in his time of need. John Stott comments on this verse of 2 Corinthians 7, 5, and 6. He says, God's comfort wasn't given to Paul, notice, through his private prayer and waiting on the Lord, but through the companionship of a friend and the good news that he brought. You see, human friendship, human friendship where we're to bear one another's burdens is part of the purpose of God for his people. So we shouldn't keep our burdens to ourselves, but rather seek a Christian friend that you know and you can trust who will help to bear them with you. And the duty of bearing one another's burdens, it's not an option. It's a command that Paul gives us. It's a command. Paul said, bear one another's burdens. He didn't suggest it or say, hey, how about it? He said, bear one another's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. And the law of Christ, for Paul, is the whole tradition of Jesus' ethical teaching. Confirmed by Jesus' character, his behavior, and he reproduced that character within his people through the power of his Holy Spirit. Look at verse 4. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Let me read the same verse from the Living Bible. Let everyone be sure that he is doing his very best, for then he will have the personal satisfaction of work well done and won't need to compare himself with anybody else. In other words, if you think you're good, prove it. Assume it. Or, and don't assume it without proof. Test yourself, Paul says. Be honest in testing yourself if you want an accurate result. A person should prove his own performance instead of always being critical of others. Examine your own work. And if you prove your own work, it won't make any difference what other people say you'll be pleased in the work that you've done because it has value. And it won't make a difference what others say because you know what you have done. Look at verse 5. 
For each one shall bear his own load. Now, verse 2, it says, bear one another's burden. Now, here in verse 5, it says, everybody bear their own load. So it sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. We all have burdens, but we don't all have the same burdens. We have many different burdens. So what Paul is doing here, he's dividing burdens into two classes. There's burdens that we can share, and there's burdens that we must bear and can't share. Our faults, our tensions, our griefs are some of the burdens that you and I can share, that we can share with each other. The word load or burden here means a load to be borne. It means it speaks of a ship's cargo, like freight. It's actually used to speak of a child in the womb because only the mother could bear it. This is a load that's impossible to share. In other words, there are burdens today that you and I cannot share. There are certain burdens that you and I will have to bear alone. For instance, suffering is one. You'll have to suffer alone. No one can suffer for you. You're born into this world alone, and it's a world of grief, and you will suffer alone. And you will have to face certain problems alone. There will be physical suffering that will come to you. You'll get sick. Nobody can take your place. You know, at times, you know, when, when your kids get sick, our kids get sick, we would gladly take their illnesses. We'd take their places. But we can't. We have to suffer alone. You can't get somebody to substitute for you. Suffering is one thing that we cannot share. Mental anguish, this is another type of suffering that you can't share. There are, there are so many disappointed people today, bitter people today, because of some great disappointment. But suffering is a burden that we have to bear alone. Then there's another burden that you and I can't share with anybody. It's death. We can't share this with anybody. There will come a time when each of us will go through the valley of the shadow of death and we will go alone. Look at verse 6. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Paul says those who are taught must be responsible in giving proper compensation to those who taught them. Don't receive and enjoy the benefits of those who teach and then not take care of them, Paul says. And then Paul puts down a principle that applies to every path in life, but it's specifically given to believers. Look at verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. There's a lot of deception today about the law of the harvest. And the message of deception says, oh, you won't reap what you sowed. In other words, go ahead. Do what, do what you like. There aren't any consequences. There won't be any consequences. Now, to believe the message of deception mocks what God said. Because God has established the law of sowing and reaping. God says, if you do this, this is going to be the result. So the message of deception argues that the divinely decreed law of sowing and reaping is not true. So when you believe that, you're mocking God. And we saw the, 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 the consequences of sin happen to David in his own family. When he, you know, when he slept with Bathsheba and he killed her husband, Uriah. Listen to what God said David's punishment was going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 12. 
Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, David. Why? Because you have despised me. And you have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Behold, I, God, will raise up adversity against you from your own house. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. So for David's sin with Bathsheba, murdering her husband and trying to keep it from everybody, trying to hide it, but again, you can't hide it from God. God told David, David, the sword is never going to depart from your house. In other words, you are always going to have trouble in your house, in your family. He said, I'm going to raise up adversity against you from your house. It's going to be your family. He says, now I've put away your sin. I've forgiven your sin. And you're not going to die. But you're going to experience the consequences of your sin. Confession and forgiveness does not stop the harvest, the reaping of your sin, the consequences. And, I, and I've seen people over the years, you know, Christians who, who have come in and, and they've confessed their sin, they're sorry for, for what they've done, and, and they say, why, why am I experiencing this now? Why, why am I going through this, this, this time? Say, I, I've, I've asked God for forgiveness. You know, I said, I'm sorry. And I said, that's fine. Okay, that's good. You're supposed to. And, and you're forgiven. But, you, but you, that, that doesn't take away the consequences. You're going to have to suffer the consequences of you, what you do. Yeah, you're saved. You're forgiven. And thank God for that. But you brought these consequences upon yourself through the actions that you, that you, that you made. So again, confession and forgiveness does not stop the consequences. You're still going to reap the harvest. Verse 8. For he who sows to his flesh will, will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. I, so again, if, if you reap to the flesh, you're going to suffer the consequences of the flesh. You reap to the Spirit, you'll, you'll experience the, the, the reaping of the Spirit. You know, in other words, wouldn't you be surprised if you planted corn and, and what popped up were pumpkins? Yeah, exactly. You don't expect that. That's not natural. It's a natural thing that what you sow, that is what you plant, is what you're going to reap. You plant corn, you're going to get corn. Don't expect anything else. You reap to the flesh, expect the flesh. Expect the consequences. Verse 9. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. The law of the harvest, of sowing and reaping, it encourages patience in doing good. The law of the harvest says you will reap. Remember, it's God's law. He said you will reap. Now, you may have your doubts for various reasons. All right. After working hard for a long time and, and, and you don't see results right away, you might have your doubts, you might get tired of waiting, and you might feel like throwing in the towel and giving it. But God says, hey, you will reap. God's promises, God promises results. Notice he says, in due season. That did not say, tomorrow you'll reap. Tomorrow you'll get the result. No, in due season. That reminds us that all seeds don't give results at the same time. And, and, and we, want, we want every, 
We want everything now, don't we? When results don't come right away, when they don't come as quickly as we want, we often lose heart. We become impatient. We quit. And if we quit before the harvest, you won't experience the results. Now, this doesn't contradict God's law. What it does, it condemns your failure in waiting. It condemns your failure in dedication. So don't lose heart. God says it. But he says, in due season, wait it out. I promised it. So again, because it doesn't happen right away, it does not contradict what God says. It just condemns our failure and dedication in waiting for God's word to be fulfilled. Verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. God requires his own to do good to others. There are many in the wicked world more interested in doing evil to others as we see what's going on around us. But there's a different standard for God's people than for the people of the world. God's people are to behave better. Everyone doesn't have the same opportunities. And most of us have more opportunities than we want to even admit. When opportunities present themselves, Paul said we must act. He said, let us do good to all that we can when the opportunity arises. A man should be every kind of a man should do every kind of good work that God may be put that God may put before him as long as they have time and the ability to know. A man should be should should do every kind of good work that God may put his put before him as long as time and ability allow. No one should be, or no one is to be, exempt from our compassion. No one is to be exempt from our compassion. And partiality mustn't guide our passion and compassion. In other words, I like that person, I don't like that person. I'm going to be compassionate to that one and not that one. That should not be the basis for our compassion. Especially to those who are of the household of faith, that is, our brothers and sisters. We don't have means to help everybody. So then we have to prioritize those that we do help. And the priority says, through Paul here, we help God's people first. At church, some people, well, I should say, people come to church. And I, and I don't mean church members, but I'm talking about those that will walk off of the street. You know, they'll come in, and, and it's, it's natural. You know, they'll come to the church looking for, you know, material things or money. And as a pastor, I put the priority on helping the members of the body of Christ before strangers. Especially when they're, you know, they give to the church. And when they're in need... We give back to them when we can. We help them. That's the priority. And a lot of people, they come in, they, they want what God has, but they don't want God. They don't want God. They just want what, want what he has, and then they move along. So we need to give our, our assistance to people proclaiming the gospel before we help the other the, the world's organizations and then we have to watch out who those organizations are because again we're giving god's money 
Look at verse 11. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Now, up to this point, Paul has been dictating the letter to like a secretary. But now he's personally writing his final personal greetings uh, like he's done in other letters to add emphasis to his words and to prove that the letter was real. So Paul, and then Paul takes one last stab at the circumcision problem to emphasize that requiring circumcision along with the gospel message is not justifiable. Look at verse 12. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Paul says those who support circumcision and salvation, they just want to impress others. They weren't interested in pleasing God. They were interested in pleasing men. They would pressure people to follow what they were teaching, to follow their belief that you need the circumcision and Jesus to be saved. So they put a lot of pressure on the people to be circumcised for salvation. And these people, these supporters of circumcision, hold to their doctrine. This is what they preach and they stay with it. Why? So they're not persecuted. See, these people knew that if they picked up the cross and they stood for the cross of Christ and Jesus only for salvation, they knew they would be persecuted. So they ignored the truth and they pushed their evil doctrine of circumcision just to keep from being persecuted, to save their hide. They were just a bunch of cowards. Verse 13. For not even those who, who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. In other words, the, the, the supporters of circumcision were, were hypocrites. He said they don't even obey the law. They didn't keep the law. They were talkers and not walkers. Watch out for those who encourage behavior that they're not willing to do because these people aren't good people. The motivation of the supporters of circumcision was to glory in their converts. In other words, they could brag about how many converts they had made for their circumcision faith rather than for the glory of God and the good of converts. They just wanted to see how many people they could get to believe that they needed to be circumcised and they say, oh, look at how many converts we have, though they didn't abide by their own, their own belief. Verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Between Paul and the world, there was a cross. And that should be the position of every single believer today. That will have more to do with shaping your behavior than anything else, that cross. You won't boast about the fact that you're keeping the Sermon on the Mount. You won't boast about, oh, I go to this certain church. Or that you're a church officer, or you're a preacher, or a Sunday school teacher. Because you won't be able to boast in anything. You'll just glory in the cross of Jesus Christ and the one who died on it. It's all about Christ. It's all about His cross. We have nothing to boast about. As Paul said, 
what you have. What do you have that, that, that God didn't give you? What do you have that God didn't give you? And Jesus said that whoever desires to follow after me, let him pick up their cross and follow me. So the, between the desire to follow Jesus, there's a cross. The cross is an instrument of death. And on that cross, Paul was saying that, 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 that it's, a, it's, a, it's an instrument of death, and, and on that cross is where my feelings and my desires are to die daily in order to follow Christ. That's why Paul said, hey, that's all I live for. Between the world and Paul, there was that cross. And so again, he wouldn't be able to boast about anything. Just in the glory of the cross and the one who died on it. Verse 15. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Now Paul repeated what he said earlier in, in, in uh, chapter 5, verse 6. The word new creature here is a result of faith. The new creation, the new creature in Christ. The message is that circumcision has no effect whatsoever on the soul when it comes to being saved. Look at verse 16. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the the, the Israel of God. Upon Israel of God. The people who qualify for this promise aren't everyone. It was just a particular group. And those, those were the ones who received the gospel of grace without the law, without circumcision. These people don't include the circumcision followers. A, a real Israelite, Paul said in Romans 2.29, is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter. In other words, Paul says that true Israelite, that one who is truly saved, that the circumcision isn't the actual physical act. It's the, it's the spiritual act of cutting away the flesh of the heart. The promise then is peace and mercy. And nobody gives peace like God through Jesus Christ. If you receive the gospel, you will receive this peace. And it includes peace with God and the peace of God. Peace is the calmness of the heart that belongs to all of those who have been justified by faith. And in the midst of the storms of life, they are safe because they have found shelter in the cleft of the rock. Peace is spiritual wholeness and prosperity. The mercy part is the way God provides salvation. Mercy, which we do not deserve, it's given to us by God. Anybody who is saved is saved through divine mercy, not through human merit, not by anything they have done or could ever do. Mercy is what God gives us, undeserved. If God's mercy hadn't been shown to his people, they wouldn't have enjoyed peace. God's mercy is his love directed towards sinners in their wretchedness and in their need. Peace and mercy, they're inseparable. Verse 17. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was persecuted just about everywhere that he went. It was a mark of his genuineness as a minister of the gospel. 
He said, let no one trouble me. In other words, Paul has had enough persecution. He's had enough trouble. And the sufferings that, that Paul endured for Jesus' sake and the gospel of Christ should discourage the Galatians from adding more suffering to the already number of sufferings that he had already endured. Paul said, in my body, I bear the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's body, man, it was marked by many scars, bumps and bruises from persecution for his stand for Christ. Paul could go to those Judaizers, to those legalists, and he could lift up his shirt and he said, look, these are the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ in my body, proving the genuineness of who I am and who I believe in. How embarrassing. They could not dare lift up their shirts and show the marks of Jesus Christ in their body. What a contrast to the Judaizers who didn't experience this kind of treatment. Paul held the physical marks as the proof of his his integrity, and they truly were marks of integrity. Let's close with verse 18. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Paul started the book of Galatians in chapter 1 with grace. And he ends this letter with an emphasis of grace. What a contrast to the legalists who are all about works. Who pushed works, keeping the law instead of grace. And grace is wonderful. But it's hard for for a, a proud man to accept. And a proud man will do just about anything to try to earn his way to heaven because that way he can say look what i did look what i'm doing look what i've done so he'll try to do just about anything to earn his way to heaven rather than accept the grace given to him through the work of jesus christ on the cross paul's letter to the galatians boldly declares the freedom of the christian and no doubt these early christians in galatia they wanted to grow in the christian life but they were being misled by those who said, hey, you have, to, you have to obey and keep certain Jewish laws. Think about that. How strange it would be for a prisoner who had been let out of prison to walk back into his cell and refuse to leave. Or for an animal that was caught in a trap to be released and then go back inside of it. How sad for a believer to be set free from the bondage of sin only to return to strict obedience to a set of rules and regulations. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you've been set free. And instead of going back into some form of slavery, whether to legalism or to some sin, use your freedom to live for Jesus Christ and to serve him as he desires. Father, we come before you and we thank you so much for this Man, amazing book of Galatians, God. We thank you for the word. We thank you for what it's taught us, Lord. Thank you for what it's shown us, Lord. And, And now let us live in that freedom, that freedom that Jesus has given us through the cross. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but through the teaching of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit, you recognize that you need Christ and that you want Christ. As we're praying, I'm going to just say this prayer out loud. Just you're a chance to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior and those who might be watching at home as well. 
If you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you repeat this prayer after me to the Lord with all of your heart. Dear Jesus, please forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins. I confess to you, I am a sinner. Cleanse me and wash me of all of my sin. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me now to follow after you all the days of my life. And thank you, Lord, for dying for me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Also, if you said that prayer and you're here in the congregation, uh, see me or one of the ushers. We'd be more than glad to give you a Bible. Get into a Bible teaching church here or one that teaches the Word of God and uh, begin to grow in your new relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray for the offering.